It was the worst day of their lives. They were feeling absolutely defeated and drained. But at the heart of it, they felt betrayed. And who can blame them? In light of everything that had happened up to that point, if you could have ever banked on something happening, it was then. See, it was only a week earlier that Jesus went into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, declaring himself as king just before Passover. It was a strategic move by Jesus. It was his way of publicly declaring that he was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, the king of the Jews. You see, the people of Israel, they have been waiting for over 1,400 years they've been waiting for this Messiah to come this son of David to come. That's the reason why people lined up on the streets in the thousands and they started shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. They called out, son of David. Jesus' actions here were undeniable. He was the once for all future king, the one who would make everything right. And this Jesus, it seems as though he's fitting the bill. They have witnessed his power and his wonders and the way in which he preached with authority. This Jesus, he was able to go up to a blind man, touch his eyes, and to give him sight. He was able to walk on water and restore sight to the blind, to give voice to the mute, to strengthen the legs of a lame man. He was able to go up to a crazy man and to take all of the demons and to throw them into pigs. He was able to see a great tempest, a mighty storm, and with a single word, quiet, it would die down. He went up to a little 12-year-old girl who recently died, and he said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up, and she does. He went to the tomb of Lazarus and he's been dead for three days and he says, Lazarus, come out! And to the amazement of everyone, he does. He finds a little lunchbox and he feeds thousands of people with it. People have been witnessing the signs and the wonders of Jesus and they begin to think to themselves, maybe, just maybe, he's the Messiah. See, the people of Israel, they half expected that this Messiah would come out of a phone booth with a capital M on his chest. He would fly down to the middle of Jerusalem. There he would overthrow the Roman authorities because the people of Israel, they're tired. They're tired of being pawns in the midst of these large empires. First under captivity of the Egyptians, then the Babylonians, then the Syrians, then the Greeks, and now the Romans. And they are tired. And this Jesus comes along and they begin to have a glimmer of hope. And then Jesus, he takes the disciples up into the upper room to celebrate Passover. It's there that they are reminding themselves of what happened in the Old Testament and when the angel of death would pass over the houses of the homes that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the door and in that way they did not kill anyone inside the house but the angel of death would pass over and here Jesus, he says, I am that lamb. He says, take this bread and eat it in remembrance of me. And after supper, he takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The actions of Jesus are undeniable. But the next morning, you find out that he's been captured by the Roman authorities. 
He's been brought before a trial, a kangaroo court with witnesses, and they all find him guilty. And even then, we hang on to hope, thinking to ourselves, maybe, the, just maybe, this is part of Jesus' plan. Maybe, kind of like Samson, he'll go into the temple, he'll get two pillars, he'll push them over, and everyone will die inside, and Jesus will come out unscathed. But then they give him a crown of thorns. They give him the 40 lashes minus one. 40 lashes was a death sentence. They give him a cross that he has to carry outside of Jerusalem, up a hill that they call Golgotha, the land of the skull. And there they take nine-inch nails and they pierce them into his hands and his feet. And we're still hanging on to hope. Even the Roman officials, they know the miracles and the work of Jesus. They say, he could save others, why can't he save himself? And the way that it all ends is with Jesus first saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in a whimper, he says, it's finished. And then he dies. That's it? That's the whole story? And these two men that we're going to encounter in this story, they're recounting everything that has happened from Easter Good Friday until Easter Sunday. And we get to catch up with them on the road. And my hope and my prayer for you on this Easter morning is that you would learn the same lesson that these two men learned And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open with me. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, about four-fifths through your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. While you're looking there, I want to share with you the first three words of verse 13, and it says this, that very day. Don't you hate jumping into a story halfway through? So let me just give you the context here. It starts at verse one, and it says this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, women took spices they had prepared, and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it goes on to say that there's two angels dressed in white, and they say to the women, Jesus isn't here. He's risen, just like he said that he would. And we keep reading at verse 9. It says, When they came back from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to everyone else. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others who were with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. Why? Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Circle, highlight, underline. And then we get to verse 13. That same day, Two men were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles away from Jerusalem. They're headed in the wrong direction. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still and their faces were downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? 
What things, Jesus asked, I love that. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Circle, highlight, underline. And what's more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but we haven't seen Jesus. We haven't seen Jesus. I love this story. Jesus, he comes right up behind these two men and for some reason, they don't recognize him. Uh, Why? I don't know. Perhaps it's a temporary miracle where they just can't see his face. We also know from the context that it was really dark and so maybe uh, there are shadows over his face or he's got a hoodie over his face. Who knows? But they don't know that they're talking to Jesus as they talk about Jesus to Jesus. And then Jesus, he, he asks, hey, what are you talking about? And they say, clearly, you're not from this planet. Don't you know? We're talking about Jesus from Nazareth. He was crucified. He was put to death. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one. We hoped he was the one. We hoped he was the Redeemer. These two men on the road, they say, are you a stranger here? Everyone is talking about the same thing. Every newspaper article, every Facebook feed, every Twitter account, every blog, every stratosphere, everyone is talking about Jesus. Where have you been? And then they turn to themselves and they say, what a bait and switch. We had hoped that he was the Messiah and that's where hope gets you. And this morning, my hope for you is that you can begin to see some of the mistakes that these two men made on the road. And this is the way that I put it in your note sheet. Knowing about Jesus can leave you frustrated. Knowing about Jesus can leave you frustrated. Now, these men, they knew Jesus, right? Look again at verse uh, 18 in your Bibles. It says this, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And I love how Jesus baits them. He says, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. They know about Jesus. They know where he's from. They know that he's mighty in word and in deed and in power. They know his words. They know his miracles. They know all there is to know about Jesus, and yet they are frustrated. They say, we hoped that he was our savior, but then they killed him on a cross, and now it's all over. And so they're frustrated. But not only that, they're also disappointed. Disappointed. Look again at verse 21. It says this. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So they're disappointed with the outcome. Disappointed that Jesus didn't come through in the way that they had hoped. Disappointed that 
with the, the expectation that they had of Jesus and how he fell dangerously short of what they had expected him to do. Now, some of you, you might be thinking, Justin, this is the most depressing Easter message I've ever heard. And yet, perhaps, some others of you, you're saying, no, that's exactly where I am. I'm in that place right now. I'm frustrated, I'm bewildered, I'm afraid, I'm questioning why. I don't understand how good God could allow these things to be happening in my life. I totally get it. I'm in exactly the same place. And I'm, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand because I can't see you anyway, but have you been there? Have you been in that place where you're calling out to God in the dark of night and you're asking God those questions? God, where are you? How could you allow these things to be happening? And once again, these two men, maybe just like you, they know the stories about Jesus. They know his name. They know his stories, his miracles, his teachings. You might even be able to say, I could teach other people about Jesus. And yet, and yet, there's 12 degrees of separation that still is occurring in the lives of these two men and perhaps in your life too. Perhaps you know all the stories, but still you are disappointed in Easter. Maybe you have more in common with these two men than you originally thought. And so that is what we also find from this story. These two men, they're circling back from the tomb. They're seven miles away from the tomb. And so knowing about Jesus can leave you, number three, heading in the wrong direction. They're so disappointed with the first Easter. The tomb is empty, but as we find in verse 13, they're about seven miles away from where Jesus has been buried. They're not at the tomb. They're not waiting for him. They're heading in the opposite direction. And let me just, let me show you something in scripture. One of the really interesting things that we find in each of the gospels is that Jesus repeatedly said things like this. He said, I, uh, the son of man, he will suffer on account of the chief priests and the teachers of the law and he will be put to death and after three days he will rise again. And the interesting thing is even though he said that incessantly, no one expected the resurrection. Let me just give you four examples of this in the Gospel of Mark. There's many, many more, but let me just give you four. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 says this. And he began, that's Jesus, to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. No one expected the resurrection. Mark chapter 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged his disciples to tell no one what they had seen. They're at the transfiguration. It's there that they saw Moses and they saw Elijah. They're coming down. Don't tell anyone what we saw until the Son of Man rose back from the dead. No one expected the resurrection. Mark chapter 9 verse 31 The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men And they will kill him And when he is killed after three days He will rise again No one expected the resurrection And they will mock the son of man And spit on him and flog him and kill him And after three days he will rise No one expected the resurrection Why? Why? The same reason many people don't believe today it was inconceivable. 
it was impossible to believe. It was incomprehensible. Not even one disciple was was sitting around that morning thinking to themselves, hey, remember all those times in which Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things and he will die and after three days he will rise? He said that so much. He actually said it incessantly, really. Well, it's been three days. I wonder if we should go. I wonder if we should just go look at the tomb and see what happened. And yet, no one went to the tomb. No one was there. Just think about this for a second. Think about how depressing it must have been for Jesus at the resurrection. Jesus, he's, he's behind the closed tomb. It's Sunday morning. He's anticipating rolling the stone away and he's thinking to himself, I told my disciples, I told the crowds really incessantly, all these different times I told them, after three days I will rise again. So maybe, just maybe, 15, no, 20,000 people, they're gonna be on the outside. They're gonna be chanting my name. They're gonna be celebrating Easter and then the tomb begins to roll away and... No one's there. No one is there. Even though Jesus said this time after time after time, no one expected the resurrection. And he's like, seriously, no one? And Jesus has to go out and start looking for people. And he finds two men seven miles away from the tomb. And there he meets up with them and he says, hey guys, what are you talking about? And they essentially say to him, where have you been? Have you been under a rock for the last three days? And he goes, well, actually, they're like, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He's died. And Jesus must have had a smile on his face as he talked to them. They're angry, they're frustrated, they're disappointed, and they're heading in the wrong direction. They know all about Jesus and yet they're still empty. Have you been there? Have you been in that place? Perhaps in your own life, you have been following Jesus. You've had a good life, but after a while, you discovered that cancer still kills. A recent diagnosis, the loss of a job, a broken marriage, difficult children, life not occurring the way that you thought that it would and you find yourself bewildered and frustrated and afraid and heading in the wrong direction wondering why why God why I thought it wouldn't turn out this way I thought it would be different and if you've been there, the story that, that we're reading this morning is perhaps strikingly similar to your own. But here's the thing, even more than 2,000 years later, so many of us are doing exactly the same thing as these two men. And Jesus, he finally has enough of this conversation and he starts talking in verse 25. He says this, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what he said in scripture concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going to go farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. And so he, Jesus, went in and stayed with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, take note of this, he gave thanks and he broke it and he began to give it to them. 
Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him that he was Jesus and he disappeared from their sight. Poof, he's gone. I love this story. Jesus having a conversation with them, breaking bread. They suddenly recognize that it's Jesus and boom, he's gone. He disappears. Jesus, he says, you fools, you know who I am. You know where I came from. You know my teachings. You know my sermons, my stories, my miracles, my wonders. And yet still, there's that 12 degrees of separation from your head to your heart. It hasn't changed you. The gospel hasn't moved you. You still don't understand the purpose of the resurrection. You still don't understand the purpose of Easter. Wow. And then we get to verse 32. It ends this way. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened scripture to us? Then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Now they're heading in the right direction. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together saying, it is true. The Lord is risen. And he has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. Do you see the word returned there in verse 33 in your Bible? That is the same Greek word, metanoia, for repentance, to make a U-turn. So what we have to see here is that these two men on the road, it's not as though they only made a physical U-turn, that they were heading away from Jerusalem, and now they're heading in the right direction geographically to Jerusalem, but that in their heart of hearts, they are repenting and they're turning toward Jesus and everything that it means to follow the God of God in their life that they have chosen to follow Jesus. And so this is the message that we can't miss at Easter. I put it this way in your note sheet. It's not the knowledge of the dead Jesus that changes us. It's walking with the living Jesus that transforms us. You can, have ha- you can have all the head knowledge of Jesus and it still won't necessarily change your heart. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says as much when he says this, you believe that God is one? Awesome, that's good. But guess what? Even the demons believe that. But here's the only difference. They shudder at the name of Jesus. And so here's what we know. Satan and his minions, they believe in Jesus. They have a far greater faith than you and I will ever have. They believe in the teachings of Jesus, the miracle and works of Jesus. They believe that he died and that he rose again, but I think something we can all agree with is that they're not gonna be in heaven with us. So what's the lesson that we're learning here? What is it that Jesus wants us to see? These two men, they knew everything about Jesus, but they didn't know what the empty tomb meant for them. They didn't understand what it meant. And for those of us today, maybe we have grown disappointed with God due to our expectations of what Jesus is supposed to do for us. See, this has kind of been an anthem or a mantra that we have been revisiting, especially over the last four weeks. The accusation that the disciples make in Matthew chapter eight, they say to Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care about us? 
We have expectations for how you ought to be interacting with our life and you're, you're falling short of the expectations that we have for you. We don't know what's going on. But here's something that we have to take note of. It wasn't until these two men walked on the road with Jesus and broke bread with Jesus that things started to become clear in their life. It wasn't until they encountered the risen Jesus that things began to change. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter five, verse eight. He says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We serve a God who couldn't stand living without you and me. So he sent his one and only son into the world to die so that he could have us back so that we could be bought back, we could be redeemed. And growing up, I I thought that I always understood the cross of Christ, I always understood Good Friday, but only recently I have come to the realization that I haven't really fully understood the empty tomb and everything that that means. It reminds me of Romans 5 verse 9 which says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Through his life. And in reading this, I I finally saw that I didn't fully understand the story of Easter. Sure, I grew up with the Bible stories. I could recite the rhymes. I could tell these stories to others. I knew the cross of Christ, but I never fully understood the tomb, the empty tomb, and what it meant for me. But it's precisely here that true transformation happens. Because here's the thing. The Apostle Paul essentially says this to us, if you think that you are saved because Christ died for you, how much more confident can you be, dear Christian, in knowing now that Christ lives for you? He lives for you. And I think the question that that I've been asking myself this week is what does that mean? What does it mean that Christ lives for me? So here's the way that I put it. This This is what we need to see. Jesus' death was a claim to be God. But Jesus' resurrection backed up that claim. Jesus' death forgave all my sins, but Jesus' resurrection, it gives me power over sin in my life. Jesus' death, it might change my title, I'm a Christian, but Jesus' resurrection changes my life. The empty tomb is what causes us to enter into the presence of God. And all the knowledge of Jesus, all the knowledge of his miracles, his stories, his power, his healing, all the knowledge of the cross, his death, his ridicule, it still doesn't necessarily change our hearts. It may not change our hearts. Even after all that, these two men on the road, they wanted their money back. They were disappointed, bewildered, afraid, and headed in the wrong direction. What did they say again? Didn't you feel your heart burn within you as he walked with us on the road? 
See, you and I, we were created with the capacity to relate to the Lord of the universe, to commune with God, to have a relationship with the creator of the universe. I think that's so amazing. And while we live in a world of evil and suffering and sin, God in the flesh, he comes down to meet us exactly where we are. He goes to the cross. He stretches out his hand. There he dies. After three days, he rises again so that we can have new life with him. Because here's the thing. So many of us settle for believing in a dead Christ who helps a dead you, forgetting all the while about the risen Christ who now lives in a new you. The resurrection of Jesus makes all the difference. You know, kind of thinking about this this past week that I have a lot of friends who say, you know, all religions essentially are the same. It's kind of like you picture God at the top of a mountain and then there's a big, huge mountain all the way to the bottom and and we're all trying to get up that mountain. We're trying to yearn and strive and seek and do good, all these kinds of things. And we might even be able to concede that there's a variety of different paths to get up that mountain, but the end result is the same. We're all trying to get up the mountain to God. And yet Christianity comes along and Christianity asks this question, what if there was a God who came down from that mountain and brought you up? Some of you, you might say, I would like to learn more about that. And the message of the gospel is, let me introduce you to Jesus. That's the story of the Christian faith. Jesus didn't wait for us to come up the mountain. He came down to us. He descended to meet us and to bring us back to him. Canadian scientist G.B. Hardy, he said it best when he said this. When I looked at religion, I said, I have two questions. Question one, has anybody ever conquered death? And question two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and he was still there. But then I came to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. And I said, there is one who conquered death, but then I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? Did he make a way for me to conquer death? And I opened the Bible and I discovered him saying, because I live, you shall also live. Easter morning, the resurrection story says this, death has been defeated on account of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection, the power of sin and death is done away with and we have been set free. The power of sin and death has been conquered. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you are part of the family of faith. You are part of the family of God. So the only question that remains for you this morning is this. Will you accept the free gift that Jesus has extended to you? 
And if you haven't made that decision before, my hope and my prayer for you is that you would choose this day to follow Jesus, that you would give him the steering wheel of your life, that you would lay everything down at the feet of Jesus and you would say, your way is better than my way. I wanna give everything to you, Jesus. I wanna follow you in obedience and love. My prayer for you is that you would make that decision today. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I wanna give you just two keys to a life in Jesus before we close. Two keys. The first one that I put in your note sheet, I put this way. The first key to life in Jesus is time invested. Travel back with me to August of 2007, and it's there that I met the most beautiful woman in the world, Julie Beth Van Boom. Man, she was so pretty, and I would make sure that no matter where she was, that's where I had to be. And I have countless examples of this. I was a praise team leader, and we had to decide uh, where all the musicians and vocalists were gonna go, and I had to convince four other worship leaders that Julie needed to be on my praise team because our voices blended well together and she was signed up with me. There was another time in which we were at a triathlon meet and we needed volunteers and I saw that Julie was signed up for the very last leg of the course and it was raining and it was a terrible day and I said, sign me up, I wanna sit with Julie. No matter where she went, that's exactly where I needed to be. There was a class that I detested in college, English 101, I didn't really like the professor. Julie signed up for English 201 with the same professor. I said, sign me up. Wherever Julie was, I wanted to be there too. Now here's the interesting thing. When I was a sophomore in college, I was a busy guy. I was a resident assistant. I played two varsity sports. I did intramurals. I was on student symposium. I played a variety of extracurricular activities. And every once in a while, I did this thing called homework. But the interesting thing was, whenever Julie called and said, hey, do you want to go to the grill? Do you want to go to McDonald's and get some fries? I would think to myself, well, I got two tests tomorrow. Maybe I should study for that. You know what? Grades can have their way. I need to hang out with Julie. And that's what I always did. And the interesting thing was, the more time I spent with Julie, the more her opinion of me mattered. And so I began to change. I combed my hair. I stopped wearing sweatpants and I wore jeans. My GPA went from a 1.8 to a 3.6. Hers went down a little bit. Sorry to tell you that, Julie, but you're not here. You can't scold me. But everything began to change. Her opinion of me mattered so much more. And what we see in Scripture is the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we draw together with Jesus, the more our hearts are drawn toward him and his opinion begins to matter more. And we begin to love him more. And our heart begins to be drawn toward him more. It works exactly the same way. So connected to this, the second point that I put in your note sheet is this. Where your time and treasure is, there your heart will follow. And that's precisely what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six. As I said, the more I got to know Julie, the more her opinion of me started to matter, the more in love with her I became. And the more I get to know Jesus, the more his opinion of me matters. Not anyone else, not the people around me, not the other spheres of influence in my life, just Jesus. But it all starts with time. 
And the interesting thing is in, in the midst of this crisis that we're all facing, the vast majority of us have a little bit more of that T word, time. And Jesus says, spend time with me. Engage with me. Read my word. Pray with me. And in so doing, our heart begins to be drawn toward King Jesus. I found a quote this week from one of my favorite authors. His name is John Piper. And he said this. He said, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities that you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures that you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? I think about the words of the two men on the road Oh, how my heart burned within me as he talked to me on the road. For those of us who are followers of Christ, for those of us who long to be in the presence of Jesus, we know that heaven wouldn't be heaven without the presence of Christ. So people of God, congratulations. You came to Easter. Well, you didn't come. You, you tuned in to Easter, and that's great. But my hope and my prayer for you is this, that, that your understanding of Jesus would not simply be an intellectual head knowledge, but that you would long to meet with Jesus on the road, that you would long to be in the presence of Jesus, and in that way you would come to a greater understanding of the Easter story, and it is this, that Christ has conquered the grave. He has defeated sin and death, and we now have victory in Christ on on account of what he has done. And in that way, it can give us incomprehensible joy. Joy in the midst of our circumstances. Joy in the midst of what we might face in this world because we have the hope of the gospel. We know how the story ends, folks. Jesus Christ has risen. He has defeated the power of death. And we know that one day Jesus will come again he will wipe every tear away from our eyes. All will be made right in the world and that too will be a day of rejoicing. And even today, this Easter Sunday, we can rest secured that the hope that we have is as good as done. People of God, Happy Easter to you. I hope that you have a blessed day uh, yourself or with family or with friends and that the Lord would bless you in the days and the weeks to come. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father and God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus who not only died on the cross for our sins, but has victory over the grave. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us the joy of our heart, the conviction, the assurance that we know that we are pardoned on account of what Christ has done for us. And we ask, Lord, that we would have a longing to draw closer to you, that we would know you more each and every day, that you would draw near to us. And so on this Easter Sunday, may we rejoice, may we be glad and know that you are God. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ who is our Lord and our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. People of God, as you go out together into this week, know that the Lord goes before you in these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord give you his peace this day and every day. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Happy Easter, everybody.